it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, July 29th, 2022. Happy Friday, one and all. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson, your host. Townhall.com political editor and Fox News contributor. And we are here together on the radio every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And I am so happy to have you all along. If you can't listen live as we air, we have a podcast for that. It is growing in popularity thanks to all of you. And it's available for free on demand at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We, of course, counsel you to listen live if you can. Many ways to do that, including on our great affiliates across the country, including a couple new ones. There's a growing radio family here. You can also check out the live stream at Fox Nation or on our website or through the Fox News app. You've got choices. Also, our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Catch me this weekend. I'll be on Fox News Sunday. That Sunday morning, check your local listings. It will replay on Fox News Channel later during the day, but the initial airing is on your local Fox station. Brett Bayer anchoring. Looking forward to that. On the radio, here's our lineup today. On a Friday, Dagan McDowell is going to be here in studio talking through all of the economic data that we learned this week. We told you it was going to be a big week, some big reports coming. What did we learn? Dagan will shed some light in perspective, looking backwards on all of it. Byron York in our next hour is going to join us on immigration and a few other topics. Molly Hemingway here as well. Looking forward to that conversation. And it's Friday, so it's Fridays with Kat. Kat Timpf here in the studio in New York will be with us. Before we get to any of that, I want to talk about an issue that I've had people pinging me and texting me about, and it's monkeypox. And the monkeypox response, the vaccine, how we should be talking about it. And let me just give you a heads up that this is going to be a conversation about sexually transmitted diseases and certain sexual behaviors. So maybe little kids, it's not like the best thing to have on just in the background if there's kids around. Just consider this your trigger warning if you will, as we get into all of this. So monkeypox is not exactly an epidemic in the United States, but it is growing. And there are certain hotspots and individual jurisdictions are starting to declare emergencies. And part of the question is, okay, how is this spreading? What should be done about it? And I wrote about it today at townhall.com, picking up on a number of different things that I've seen and read. And a number of folks sent to me, a clip on social media it was viral. It was from my friend Kennedy's show uh, two nights ago on Fox Business Network. She had the panel on. I was not on the panel. It was Ned Ryan, who's very conservative, Brad Palumbo, who's a gay conservative, and Marie Harf, who's a liberal Democrat, and then Kennedy, of course. 
So four of them on the screen. I know all of them. I've worked with all of them, been on the air with all of them. Kennedy is one of my best friends. She officiated our wedding, right? So she's just epically talented, hilarious, love her. In fact, I'm hanging out with her later tonight. So this became sort of like a Rorschach test where people were saying Ned Ryan said something super offensive and people were right to get mad at him on the panel. And then his defenders were saying he said nothing wrong at all and everyone else was wrong and he deserves, excuse me, he deserves an apology. So I watched it. I'll let you listen to how this all went down and then give you some of my thoughts, starting with cut 20. As for monkeypox, I, I think there's a pretty good rule in life. Uh, don't attend gay orgies. Uh, when you look at the New England Journal's report of the five hundred orgies that reviewed. Ned, come on, man. It's not what? about gay. How about no, not absolutely. any orgies? Go look, at, go look at the New England Journal's report that NBC News reported on, on Friday, in which of the 528 cases they reviewed, 95 percent were between sex between men. Yeah, I think we actually have to have a serious conversation about where this is coming from. When I'm done, Brad, you can talk. Instead of going crazy and declaring a national pandemic when 3,000 people have it right now, it's insane. I don't know, man. You don't have to be gay to get monkeypox, and uh, you don't have to be bigoted when you talk about treating something that is that easily spread, Marie. It's not bigoted. Yeah, it is. This, this is science, Kennedy. 95% yeah. of the cases from the New England Journal have been reported. All right, so Brad then jumps in here in Cut 21. Okay, I'm going to let Brad respond because, Brad, we had 372 doses. The United States in Denmark, where the, the smallpox, monkeypox vaccine is manufactured, they were ready to go, but uh, because this has been an issue for more men in the gay community it seems like it has been lower on the priority list brad yeah look ned is right when he says that monkeypox right now is mostly affecting gay men the problem is that public health wise not going to orgies in general is a good policy to not get sexually transmitted diseases 100 and so we have to be really careful we saw with the aids crisis with the hiv crisis about how certain communities or certain gay people will be stigmatized yes. over something that lots of people do and we got to be careful about that and but that kind of i will use the term bigoted language that makes it seem like the only people that get this are from one group of Americans. Hey, guess what? Gay men also have friends and family members and colleagues, and this is not just transmitted through sexual activity. It's transmitted through close contact. So you don't fight diseases. I'm glad Brad brought up HIV AIDS. You don't fight diseases by caricaturing the people who get them or who get them at one point in time. Okay, that last point there was from Marie. Let's just talk about what happened here. I think there were some... Correct points made by everyone on the panel. It is not correct, and I've seen other people say, don't call monkeypox a gay disease. It's not a gay disease. Anyone can get it. If you come in contact with the lesions, the lesions from monkeypox, you can contract it. That's a fact. It's not just gay men or bisexual men or men who have sex with men, whatever you want to call it. But if you look at the outbreak as it exists right now in this country and in the world, it is... Not even close. It is overwhelmingly affecting men who have sex with men. Like 95 to 98%. In fact, just because I was curious, because this was a big issue and this controversy was brewing, here in New York City, I was just Googling the other day, if I wanted to go find, because I'm a gay man, 
if I were to go find a vaccine for monkeypox here in the city, could I do it? And they had three eligibility requirements right now because it's scarce. The vaccine is very effective, but it's scarce. And part of that is the government's fault, which is one of the points Kennedy made. We mentioned this, what, a couple weeks ago. There was a huge batch of vaccines for the United States just sitting in a warehouse in Denmark because of bureaucratic red tape. The EU had approved it. It was completely safe. But the FDA, our officials said, oh, no, we hadn't done the paperwork properly. So it was just sitting there. The government has been extremely slow-footed. This is the Biden administration doing its thing. And by the way, if it were a Republican president, I think a lot of people in the press and activists would be saying, this is callousness towards gay men. They don't care about this community. But it's a Democrat in office, so we're not really hearing a lot of that. I don't think it's because they are trying to harm the community. I think it's because they are incompetent people. And they're really bad at public health. And we're having big fights right now about what to call it. People are saying, don't call it monkeypox. That's stigmatizing because that might bring to mind, you know, Africa. And people are saying it, it, it could be racist. It's not racist. Monkeypox has nothing to do with race at all. But that's one of the dumb debates we're having. Another dumb debate is, oh, is it stigmatizing to just tell the truth about who is being affected overwhelmingly, disproportionately by the disease right now? It's not only gay and by men who can get this, as I said, that's not true. But in practical terms, that's who's getting it. And it's being spread within that small group of people, relatively speaking, right? If you are, let's say, 5% of the population and you have 95% of the cases, that seems relevant to me. It's not bigotry, in my view, to point that out. It's not homophobic to just draw some conclusions, tell the truth, which should be the job of public health officials. They've done a terrible job of it in recent years. State the truth clearly. Don't worry about political correctness or being loved or checking every little box of the woke scale or whatever. Communicate clearly and forcefully and then craft sound public policy and health recommendations. That's what the job should be. So, of course, it makes sense that the uh, eligibility requirements for this vaccine right now are targeted toward this small group of people because that's where the problem is right now. So, as I started to say, in New York City, here are the requirements. Ready? One, two, and three. Number one, you have to be gay or bisexual or a male who has sex with men, however you want to describe that. That's number one. Number two, 18 years of age or older. Number three, you have to have had multiple or anonymous sex partners within the last two weeks. If you do not fit all of those criteria, you can't even get a phone call back or an email to schedule an appointment to get the monkeypox vaccine. I happen to say say and believe that is the correct priority. If you have scarce resources and a vaccine that works, but there's not a lot of it, and again, part of that is the government's fault right now. They have not handled this well. You want to get that vaccine into the arms of the people who would need it the most. So this is why you come up with the criteria that it's in New York and D.C. and other places as well. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So if that's the criteria, why is it offensive to therefore say we're making this standard because these are the people who are at risk? 
To me, it's just common sense. And in that clip, Ned Ryan was quoting some studies, and I actually quoted from the NBC story that he mentioned as well in my townhall.com piece. I mean, it is overwhelming. All of the cases in this big study were among men, all of them, including one transgender man. 98% of the men who had it, so all of the cases in the study were men, 98% of whom identified as gay or bisexual. There was a British study. It was 97% were in the gay or bisexual category. In New York, which is one U.S. epicenter of monkeypox, the city has only seen one woman diagnosed with the virus out of hundreds of cases confirmed just in the last week or so. So there are clearly some people who are likelier to get it right now than others. It's not by virtue of the fact that they happen to be gay or bisexual. It's not like biologically they are more inclined to get it. Anyone can get it. It's the multiple sex partners, the anonymous sex partners, the orgies, the sex parties, the raves, that kind of thing where by virtue, because of how this thing gets spread, skin-to-skin content, it's not necessarily sexual, but overall, clearly it has been, in most cases, sexually transmitted. It's these communities that are more likely to engage in those behaviors, and that's where you've seen a lot of the spread. So this is where it also gets more interesting. There are people getting angry because some public health officials and groups are saying perhaps men in particular in these categories should maybe just back off the multiple sex partners, the anonymous sex partners, the orgies for a while. Like until you can go get vaccinated, maybe just, you know, scale it back or heaven forbid, abstain just for a while. We were all asked to make all sorts of sacrifices for the greater good during COVID. Some of those sacrifices turned out to be useless based on what we later found out about the disease and how it was transmitted. That was COVID. On monkeypox, we have a very good handle on how this goes, how it works. So asking certain people just to reduce or curtail their high-risk activity for a period of time until they get vaccinated, that seems perfectly reasonable to me. Not some form of hatred. It's just sound, commonsensical advice. And so I think maybe what was the objection to what Ned said, the way he said it was, it's a good rule in life, don't go to gay orgies. And it seemed like he was applying the rule in life only to gay people. And Brad was saying, well, what about, you know, heterosexual orgies? You don't want to go to those if you're trying to avoid STDs and Ned conceded that point. He said 100% true. It sounded maybe like he was focused on the gay community, and I understand maybe objecting to that a little bit, but you have to understand the broader context of what they were discussing on that panel and the clip that we played, the two clips. It was about monkeypox, and it happens to be a group of people, gay and bisexual men overwhelmingly, who are at the highest risk. And so it's not some sort of hate crime to ask people within those communities to make different decisions in their sexual habits, at least for the time being, until they can get the shot. It's not crazy. Setting aside any moral judgments about, you know, any of this type of behavior 
outside of this context. I'm talking specifically about right now. It's not sex shaming. People are like, they're attacking who we are. It is not intrinsically who you are to have an orgy. It just isn't. That's a choice. You can make different choices based on different pieces of moral calculus. This is disease-related right now. This is a public health issue right now. And yet there are people pushing back, very angry. How dare you ask for that sacrifice? This is homophobic or whatever. There was a BuzzFeed story about this written by a gay reporter who was taken aback by the amount of backlash he got just for conveying obviously correct practical health information. So I feel like we're kind of having a ridiculous conversation as usual about an issue that shouldn't be that complicated. So I'm not taking sides on the panel and my friend Kennedy and everyone. Everyone made a few good points, but let's just take a breath. Remember the context of what we're talking about and actually follow data and have a responsible conversation. That's all I ask. I've got a break. I'm running late. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. One more little thing on this monkeypox story. This is amazing. So Ariel Cohen is a reporter for Roll Call. And she tweeted this yesterday. She said, on a press call, I asked Secretary Becerra, so this is Javier Becerra, the HHS secretary for Biden. She asked him if he believed it was possible to end the monkeypox outbreak or if the virus would become endemic. He replied, quote, well, I almost turned that question back to you and ask, how many vaccines do you think we need at this stage? What? What the hell is that answer? Like, the reporter asks a completely normal question, and Becerra's like, oh, well, why don't you answer it if you're so smart? How many vaccines do you think we need? They're screwing up this process for reasons that I explain. They've underplayed it. They've been ill-prepared. They're incompetent. And they're lashing out at reporters like, well, what do you think we should do? Hot shot? You know, maybe it wasn't a great idea to put a lawyer with zero public health experience, none, in charge of health and human services in the middle of a pandemic. That's what Biden did because Becerra checks some boxes, expertise and experience, not one of those boxes. Doesn't seem like a great plan, does it? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast always free. With us here in studio in New York City is Dagan McDowell, anchor and analyst on Fox Business Network, business correspondent on Fox News Channel. You see her every morning on Mornings with Maria. Hello, Dagan. 
Hello, guys. I am on uh, the five today, so hey. I'm pre-gaming with you. You're getting ready. Yeah, I'm going to get fired up. Last time I was on with you, I think I almost lost my mind. Not you quite. almost did, and you might again today. We'll I, see. I'm hoping. People can just stay tuned. We were previewing on Monday all of the big pieces of economic data that were going to roll out over the course of the week. The big one, of course, being yesterday, GDP in quarter two. And overall, it looks like a pretty gloomy picture. I know there's like maybe, you know, slightly better than expected here. This number isn't so bad there, but these ones were worse. Here's a recession. I mean, overall, it seems like it's pretty negative. Well, the United States is in a recession. Period. There hasn't been at any time since 1947 where we've had two back-to-back quarters where the economy contracted that a recession later on wasn't declared. So you have not had a period of two quarters of contraction or a shrinking economy where it wasn't a recession in the post-World War II era. So this, all this talk about it's, you know, it's not happening. A- again, they it's like shouting into the belly of a portageon. If you're a politician, <laughs> if you work in the White House, it because the American people feel it. And certainly in my lifetime, we've never had a period where you have 40 year high inflation that is just out of control and an economy that's already in a recession. That's what the Federal Reserve is trying to deal with. So it's unprecedented. And the amount of stimulus thrown in this economy during the COVID pandemic from Congress, from the White House, and from the Federal Reserve, it's unprecedented. So the come de- the blow up went coming out of it was spectacular, but the come down is going to be incredibly dangerous. And I can I don't mean to run off at the mouth, but I can no, tell no, you no. why. No, no, I would like to know why, because part of what I'm wondering is I see a lot of experts are still saying Q three and Q four of this year you could see growth. Probably not great, but you could see some growth. That would be welcome. That would be nice. I'm just trying to figure out when does it catch up because if they're going to clamp down on inflation and raising the interest rates, usually then down the line, a recession ensues. But we're already in recession right now. So let's say we get an uptick for a number of quarters. Does that mean we're out of the woods or could we then crash again into another recession or a, you know, a deeper one? What's going to happen? And, and to your credit, I, to the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta does a kind of tick-by-tick calculation of what the economy is doing um, moment-to-moment in any given quarter. And they came out with their first an estimate for the third quarter, which is the where we are right now. The third quarter ends September 30th. And their estimate right now is for growth this quarter, but we're only a month into it. So we got two more months. But right now, it's saying 2.1% growth. So that would be positive. It would be coming out of a contraction. Mm -hmm. But what you are going to see with almost certainty is that because inflation is still out of control, because what Congress and what the White House are doing right now is spending more money, which is inflationary. Mm -hmm. So they're putting with the the chips bill that was near three hundred billion dollars. There's an additional four hundred and some billion in this Mansion Schumer boondoggle that they've thrown together. So you're talking about just in the last week, what has passed and what could pass is an additional seven hundred thirteen billion dollars in spending. On top new spending, of that, new spend, new spend. 
on top of that, so you know, $1.3 billion in new spending infrastructure and the CHIPS bill, that's been passed in this Congress. You throw one point three trillion. Yeah, one point three trillion. Yeah. In addition, you throw on four hundred more trillion. You're all, you're you're getting close to two trillion dollars. Then you're talking about the Biden administration extending this moratorium on student loan payments. That is stimulus for rich doctors and lawyers. Those are payments that they don't have to make. That's extra money. That's inflationary. That is pure inflation juice. So what does that all mean? It means that this burden on the central bank, on the Federal Reserve to fight inflation becomes greater and greater and greater. So they have to hike interest rates more and more and more. And when does that bite us? Because that's what's biting us now. That's why the economy in part is contracting because interest rates started moving up ahead of the Federal Reserve hiking rates in March. Right. So you had mortgage rates hitting over 5.8 percent just a few months ago. In the GDP report for the second quarter, you have a, con- a housing fell and shaved like seven tenths of a percentage point off of the GDP. I digress, but so you're all you were already seeing some of the well, effect that's why of we higher have, rates. We have this technical recession already, and they can talk to their blue in the face about how the definition doesn't count anymore. I refuse to go along with that. It's been the same freaking definition for decades. Right. It's what we're using. They've all used you, it. I'll quote you back to you. When you're talking, you're losing. When you're explaining, explaining you're losing. Explaining, you're losing. Yep, 100%. And this is this is not even explained. This is like frantically trying to redefine stuff. Uh, and most people aren't buying it. But a lot of the – and again, you're, you're one of the experts. I'm not. A lot of these high-level analysts were saying that their prediction for the recession was 2023, maybe 2024. Are we getting the pain out of the way sooner no. or is there going to be pain coming even if we have a little bit of growth – in the next couple quarters, there will be a great deal more pain that, you know, Ken Rogoff is a very famous Harvard economist. And he said on uh, Mornings with Maria yesterday morning, he said, this is no time for fiscal extra fiscal spending or extra fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington. And the well, greater, it hasn't been for a while. But the greater the burden you put on the Federal Reserve we live in a highly leveraged economy, and if you have the Federal Reserve to fight inflation, has to take interest rates. Short-term interest rates only now are only at two and a half percent. But if they have to take rates to five percent, inflation's running at nine. Historically, you've had to take rates above the inflation rate to kill it permanently. So, do you think? And this is a rhetorical question: Who thinks that the U.S. economy can handle short-term rates high at? at Nine percent. We probably can't handle it at five percent. We're deeply indebted. the The mm. government is deeply indebted. The nation and individuals are deeply indebted. So that's what would trigger not just a very deep protracted recession for not months, not just a couple of quarters, but a years potentially. First. Secondly, it would trigger like a bl- explosion in financial assets where the you just start destroying money, reducing the balance sheet, essentially setting money on fire. And you would have assets, housing blowing up, stocks blowing up. And, and I want to be you know, from the mountain high crying that this is going to happen. But clearly Washington – Some combination of that is seemingly inevitable based on just like basic 
you know, rules of gravity, economic gravity. Right? I caught I on this on the fives New Year's Day special. I said the story last year, the story of the year was inflation, how the Federal Reserve had let it run, let inflation run hot starting in the fall of 2020 and let it run hot all year. And it had gotten out of the out of control. And in order to rein it in, the Federal Reserve was going to act, act so aggressively, you were going to see a, a collapse in asset prices, which has happened. It happened in stocks and crypto and everything. But now comes the recession. We're in a recession now. Maybe we come out of one, but then we go back into one next year. Mm. It, history, over 100 years, it follows the same trajectory. And everybody who talks about how strong – employment is and how the unemployment rate so yeah, low. What's You've the heard response that, to that number? Okay. So, so that's, is, I'm glad that you brought that up because you hear that from the White House and they're saying they won't define recession. Right. Our, our collectively, our definition they say is wrong, but they won't define it differently. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre also said, we're not even in a pre-recession. That's something that she said. I don't know what that means. President says the economy is moving in the right direction. He said that yesterday, took no questions. And one of the things that they point out is employment is strong. Jobs are plentiful, strong labor market, low unemployment. That's number one. Number two, look at the markets. Like right now, the Dow's up 367 points. It was up yesterday. Isn't that kind of a weird reaction to a recession? The Investors think that the Federal Reserve is not going to – is not going to hike interest rates even to 4%. They're really betting that Jay Powell and company stop raising rates at probably 3% at the end of the year. I think Jay Powell screwed up uh, saying that we were near neutral, which means that the rate is neither um, uh, it neither stimulates the economy or suppresses it, suppresses mm-hmm. growth. What so I think the markets have got it wrong. I think the markets are reading because Jay the, Powell because wrong. Because the Fed has it wrong. No, they've been because wrong. they're just reading it. They think Jay Powell is going to be, okay, you so know, a weakling, a Biden and company weakling who's not as Fed chief not going to get tough on inflation. Uh, that being said, employment, mm-hmm. employment is the laggingest of indicators. As to quote Stephanie Pomboy, who's a, a great uh, market uh, follower and economist. It, it is the last thing that goes up. Mm. It is the last thing that you want to, to pay attention to. What does start cratering first is housing starts weakening. And we're seeing that. That happened this okay. week, right? We're already seeing it. Pending home sales. Yeah. These are contracts for existing homes fell at more than eight and a half percent month over month, down 20 percent from a year ago, just because rate mortgage rates hadn't even gotten to six percent. So that starts. Then you start watching the jobless claims, the weekly jobless claims, people filing for unemployment benefits. That starts ticking up, already is ticking up this year. So it's slow. But the hundred year history of this is when you start removing money from the economy and raising rates, that just one thing after another. Dominoes. It just dominoes. And one of the last dominoes. It's one of the most predictable things. And the fact that these People <laughs> are in Washington. Radio, careful. Yeah, in Washington are standing up there saying, "Well, they they it's don't the right know direction. what they're talking about." They're, they 
How can you say that it's when the economy is contracting, it's, it's the wild. right direction? And tax and spend. So they're going to spend more money to juice inflation, and they're going to lay well, a tax on corporations. Yeah, yeah. so let's, let's get to that because we can parse the words of the president and his press secretary all we want. It's, she said, I guess, on the view that they're just in the middle of a transition to sustainable growth is what we're seeing, even though we've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth. With the inflation happening, it's just it, it doesn't make when, any sense. When they took office, the economy was growing at four and a half percent, and inflation was below one and a half percent. They had almost no inflation and extremely strong growth. All they had to do was coast and do nothing, mm. bupkis, not niente, and the economy would be fine. Their policies have actively destroyed our standard of living and our way of life. They made it worse. They made it worse, and now. And we were just about to get into this. Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin have this plan, this proposal, and it, I think they're going to pass this or something close to this. They don't have all the ducks in a row yet. We'll see. Maybe it'll implode, which would be great. But what they are proposing to do is in the middle of inflation, spend more money, a lot more money, mm-hmm. new money, number one. And number two, with a recession here and perhaps getting worse down the line, they want to raise taxes on the American people, on businesses. And I know sometimes that polls well. Oh, they're they're just taxing corporations. The Tax Foundation ran the numbers on that type of tax increase, and it reduces GDP and reduces jobs. What are you doing? That would be a bad idea ever, but especially with this recession here, it just seems like a crazy thing to do. But what you hear Biden saying is Larry Summers, who they ignore all the time and we quote all the time because he was right on inflation, he's been right on recession – He's basically endorsed the bill saying this is good. It will help fight inflation. What's the response to that? Because, you know, he seems to have at least been a pretty intellectually honest, credible person. He's signing on to this thing, apparently, even though as a non-expert, to me, it seems nuts. Well, one, these bills never raise the amount of revenue that they say they are. So in terms of the deficit reduction, I even – like a cursory glance at it when it first came out, I thought that the, the targets on the, the revenue raise in this are absolutely ridiculous. Well, a lot of it is they want to double the size of the IRS to come cracking down on people. Right. And we know that. Oh, oh so, okay. So you, rich people who have tax attorneys and but yeah, just armies of tax attorneys will fine. do fine. So you're going to crack down on the middle class That's who right. are already struggling mightily yes. and can't pay lawyers. Yes. Okay. Good idea. Great <laughs> great political move too. Uh-huh. But in in terms of raising tax, you're going to when companies are struggling and companies struggle just with the inflation. You look at Walmart, it makes it impossible to manage a business. You don't know you got goods coming in and you don't know how to price them correctly. It it makes it Small business, big business, it makes it an absolute nightmare trying to manage it. But they're going to take raise taxes, so you're taking money away from businesses that they would use to expand and hire and pay their workers or more. Or retain, right? If they're worried about jobs going right. away at some point, that's less money to do oh, that. And one of the reasons that employment, even in a very high inflationary environment, that employment will stay stable. This is straight from Kevin Hassett. Employment will look stable, but – it's because companies aren't laying people off because their wages are plummeting when adjusting for inflation. So they're essentially sitting back and not paying them more, not giving them raises. The wages are actually plummeting, so they don't really have to lay people off, if that makes sense. It does. It just – it doesn't sound great for workers. No. Everything that's going on right now – And the layoff still could come at some point anyway, though. I can use this. 
everything that's going on right now in this economy, it sucks. It sucks for individuals. It sucks for workers. It sucks for business owners, small business operators, CEOs, on down the line, people in management. It is – they've created a world of suckitude. <laughs> it is a black hole of idiocy in Washington. I'm not, I'm not laughing at your analysis. I'm not laughing at the reality that you're describing. I am laughing at suckitude. It's – I've – somebody asked me yesterday, um, you know, asked me about covering it, covering the story, and I said I hate it because I know – well, it's not the, just numbers. It's it's hurting people, real people, every single day in these myriad ways that you've right. just described. Well, I'll give the people in Washington advice and the people in big media. Call your mom and your dad and talk to them. Talk to the people you grew up with, not the people who work in Congress with you. Stop trying to get that political article about Joe Biden's big Yeah, win. the comeback. The comeback has arrived. He, it's like the week of the recession getting they're, announced. They're trying – Again, are you trying to get an invite to like some state dinner? Is that really the goal in life? Maybe. We got to run. Dagan McDowell on the five coming up. Yes. A little over an hour from right now. God help us all. Fox News Channel will be watching. Thanks, Dagan. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Last night in Washington, D.C., an annual tradition, the congressional baseball game. You see the clip? We talked about it on Outnumbered today. I was on the couch. Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, Democrat of California, was being pinch run for at one point. I guess she's not a speedster. They pinch ran for her. And on her way back to her dugout, she was trotting past the Republican dugout and flipped them the bird. Middle finger over to the Republican. That's a classy gesture. By the way, final score of the game last night at Nationals Park. Republicans 10, Democrats Zero. Hey, maybe they can do it again in November. How about that? Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Byron York, Molly Hemingway, straight ahead. You don't want to miss it. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A new hour on the Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour of three. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast, no charge to you every day. That's on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. As we get going in this middle hour, I will first remind you that I've got Fox News Sunday. On Sunday, you can tune in, check your local listings. I will also bring you a Fox News alert with the Dow closing out 315 points up. Today in the green, finishing the week at 32,845. And we talked a little bit about that with Dagan McDowell last hour. If if you missed that interview, uh, she coined the term world of suckitude. You might want to go back and listen to that on the podcast. It'll be posted at GuyBensonShow.com a little bit later on. With us now is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, good to have you back. Thanks for having me, although I don't think I have anything as good as world of suck it. <laughs> well, we'll see. There's still time. Uh, there, the, the jury's out, Byron. I want to start with this. 
it has been fascinating to watch, in my opinion. And I mentioned this on Outnumbered earlier. It has been fascinating to watch what I originally thought was kind of a stunt by Greg Abbott and the government of Texas busing these migrants to D.C. You know, I, I wasn't opposed to it. I said, OK, this is a, a stunt that they're doing to draw some attention to the problem. I did not imagine it would work as well as it has with the government of D.C. and the mayor like on her knees begging for federal help, call in the troops. It's a tipping point. It's a it's a crisis. They've had 4,000 of these migrants show up on buses, which is like one day's worth on a good day down in Texas. And Muriel Bowser is like, you know, crying uncle already. If it was a stunt, which I think it was, it's been a pretty darn successful one, hasn't it? It really has. And I did not give Greg Abbott enough uh, credit either when he started doing this first bus from uh, Texas to Washington, D.C., arrived in May. And then uh, Governor Ducey of Arizona also uh, kicked in on this and began sending some to Washington, D.C., as well. And by the way, there's, there was nothing coercive about this uh, at all. This was entirely voluntary for um, illegal border crossers who were being allowed to stay in the United States who wanted to get closer to wherever they were going by going to Washington, D.C. Um, what's extraordinary here is, is you're right that the, the mayor, Mayor Bowser of Washington, has declared a humanitarian crisis in Washington. She's asked President Biden for to call out the National Guard to assist uh, the city. She says they are simply overwhelmed by the 4,000 illegal border crossers who have arrived in the past couple of months from Texas. Now, contrast that to the 1.25 million at least million. illegal border crossers who have been allowed to stay in the United States. This is not encounters with with the Border Patrol. These are people who have come and they've been allowed by the Biden administration to stay in the United States. So 4,000 are overwhelming a city like Washington, D.C., and you have at least 1.25 million on the border. And about, what, 900,000 known gotaways this and exactly. last fiscal year. I mean, we're really talking. And of course, the, the administration is not going to do anything to try to find the gotaways and return them to Mexico. That's not going to happen. No, in fact, in fact, they're saying in their people. in their memos, Byron, they're saying that even if you did find them by accident, you can't deport them, even if they've commit a whole series of or committed a whole series of additional crimes while here. If they weren't violent enough crimes, they're not eligible for deportation. That's the message. That's the policy. Of course. We're going to get flooded with illegal immigrants if that's the approach of the U.S. government. Absolutely. I mean, and, and the, the Biden administration has created this entirely because it offered an incentive, which is the ability to stay in the United States to people who cross illegally into the country. They would be allowed to stay. And amazingly enough, they've come um, in droves. Now, there's just been a new story in the past couple hours, I think, posted by the Washington Post, Nick Miroff, about the situation on the border between Arizona and Mexico. I'm just going to read you one paragraph. It's about a group, groups of people who are waiting to turn themselves into the Border Patrol. They're not trying to escape. They're not trying to sneak into the country. Mm -hmm. They're just here. The 15 men, all from India, clustered together anxiously in line along with hundreds of others waiting to turn themselves in. The crowd included families from Colombia and Venezuela, smiling Cuban 20-somethings taking selfies, several young Iranians, a group of Georgians heading for New Jersey. So India, Colombia, Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, Georgia, 
Oh, Byron, Byron, all we need to do, hang on, I just have to, I have to jump in and keep you honest here. All we have to do is deal with the root causes in all of those countries, Byron, and get the vice president on it and presto, problem solved. (laughs) Joe Biden has opened the border to the world. And by the way, it's, it's kind of amazing. The, the official line of the Biden administration is that the border is still closed. closed. Yeah. Um, secure. Pierre, the, the spokeswoman of the White House, said it the other day. Alejandro Mayorkas, head of Homeland Security, has said it. They, it is still their position that the border is, quote, closed. Meanwhile, getting back to the busing of migrants stunt that is working in Washington, D.C., we've heard similar complaints from Mayor Adams in New York. It's, oh, it's straining our resources. This very fractional number of people compared to the just the huge deluge that you just ran through some of the numbers on byron on that policy from texas and arizona busing people to washington dc like okay here's just a little taste of what you guys are creating the white house and ms jean pierre has called this shameful she said it's shameful what these states are doing, what Abbott and Ducey are doing, these Republican governors. Of course, the crisis isn't shameful. The incentives aren't, in, aren't shameful. The mass lawlessness is not shameful. It's the Republican governors sending a small number of these migrants to D.C. just to give them a sense of what's happening. That is what's shameful, she says. And she's been asked why. And her answer is why. Well, they're using them as pawns. They're using migrants as pawns. And there was an interesting question asked just today about this because we know that the Biden administration is busing and flying illegal immigrants to the destinations of their choices, you know, uh, inside the United States. What's the difference between that and what the Republican governors are doing? Here's her attempt at an answer earlier in Cut 24. What's the difference between Texas busing migrants to D.C. and the federal government flying migrants to, say, New York in the middle of the night and other cities? It's very different because we're not doing it as a as using migrants as a political pawn. Oh, it's very different, Byron, because they're using them as a pawn and we're not. I mean, that's not an answer. There's no substance to that. Is that the best they have? Yes, it is. It is absolutely the best they have. And remember... President Biden has has made a point of not going to the border. That's right. At various times when the border has flared up, a lot of Republicans have said, gee, President Biden, you should go see the situation for yourself. After all, you created it. So I think what we're seeing uh, is kind of an ancillary benefit of what Governor uh, Abbott is doing is that some of the border problem is coming to Washington for the president uh, to see. But no, they, they don't have uh, an answer to this. And it is important to remember, I'm glad that question was asked, that the U.S. government is relocating, kind of stealthily mm-hmm. relocating thousands of illegal border crossers into communities across the country. Yeah, it's like uh, the question gets asked and she goes to her little binder and she goes to the tab and the word there is the buzzword is pawns. Say pawns. That's the difference. It's just so totally unconvincing. Byron, we got to leave it there, actually, because this interview has just flown by. I wanted to get to the recession. We did talk about that with Dagan in the last hour, New York Post today, with a headline. Really, the the cover story is just the definition, the dictionary definition of recession that the administration is rejecting right now, even though they themselves have used it. All the journalists who are hedging, they've all used it. It's just a festival of hackery, Uh, but not here. We're being honest about it. Byron York, always enjoy it. Thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you, guys. 
All right, when we come back, I want to get to some very interesting data on a controversial issue that maybe isn't so controversial. That's next. Then Molly Hemingway still to come. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So I saw a link to this poll that I wanted to share with you. I wrote about it this week at townhall.com. It was a Pew Research poll that came out this spring. And I hadn't seen it, but I'd written about this issue a few different times. And this just underscores the point that I've made. And it's this. Sometimes elite opinion, especially within journalism circles, the journos, is massively out of touch with the American people. Sort of the consensus about what polite society thinks and where America is, is just way off. One issue that comes to mind is abortion, which is a divisive issue. But when you look at the sort of radical fringes on either side, most cultural tastemakers and almost all of the news media happens to side with one of the fringes which is the pro-abortion fringe, as opposed to the anti-abortion fringe, which very few people embrace. And most Americans actually have mixed views on these issues, that issue in particular. It's complex. It's a little bit messy when you look at public opinion. And we've talked about some of that here on the show. Many Americans actually are somewhere in the middle, where they are against blanket bans on abortions. They favor various exceptions. And they also favor pretty significant limitations on the practice. That's kind of where the middle ground actually is in this country. But you would never know that. Reading newspapers, watching a lot of cable news segments about it, certainly looking at Twitter. And a lot of these people are so out of touch, they are just sort of shocked when a poll interrupts their worldview or barges in on their thinking a little bit. They're like, oh, and they kind of just ignore that. And a lot of them just couldn't believe it when conservatives pointed out, for instance, that in much of the Western world and developed society in other countries, limitations on abortion are very commonplace. And in a lot of cases, much more restrictive than we had here in America during the Roe versus Wade era. Another topic where there's a big disconnect is race. And specifically racial and race-based admissions in the universe of higher learning. It just sort of goes without saying that affirmative action and racial quotas or whatever you want to call it is a good thing. That's what elites believe. You have major institutions and corporations, etc., pouring huge resources into Diversity, equity, and inclusion, ESG, all of this stuff, all the buzzwords, they are spending huge amounts of money on it. They're obsessed with it. There's a fixation on identity and skin color and representation and all of this stuff. Racializing everything is one of the primary focuses and goals of sort of the woke crowd, which is increasingly dominant. In our culture, even though most people reject it and really dislike it, actually. So there's going to be a Supreme Court case coming up in the next term 
on affirmative action, race-based admissions practices. One is a public university. One involves Harvard. And already you're seeing these leftists being like, oh, the Supreme Court better not impose its will again. Out of step with Americans. This is what they said about abortion. It's what they're saying about this race issue as well, except they are the ones who are completely out of touch with what people believe. This brings us to the Pew poll that I referenced from just, what, two months ago or so. They asked Americans, what should be the top factors that colleges and universities should consider when deciding whether to admit someone into that institution, a student? So the options were major factor, minor factor, not a factor. High school grades, unsurprisingly, was a consensus. 61% said it should be a major factor. 32% say it should be a minor factor. Only 7% said it should not be a factor. I would love to meet those 7%. But that is 93% of Americans saying grades should be a factor, obviously. What about standardized test scores? You add that up, and it's well over 80% say that should be a major or minor factor. Community service or involvement also should be a factor on balance, with only 33% saying that should not be a factor. But then you get into other realms. For example, whether a relative attended the school, so legacy admissions. 75% of Americans say that should not be a factor at all. Now, there are fundraising components to that. I understand why schools do it. But that's one where most Americans say no. The legacy thing does not really say anything about the merit of this individual student as opposed to his or her relatives. So that's not fair. Let's not go with that. And I'm sure a lot of leftists would applaud. Yeah, they're right. That's fairness. Why are these rich people with their legacies and the donors get their kids in? That's not fair. Well, what they won't like is some of the other polling results. Should race or ethnicity be a major, minor, or non-factor? That's the question to the American people from Pew. Listen to these results. And this is consistent with other polling on this that I've highlighted through the years. 7% of Americans believe that race and ethnicity should be a major factor in this decision. Just 19%, in addition, say it should be a minor factor. 74% say not a factor. Three-quarters of the American people say that race should not factor in at all in the college admissions process. And yet it really feels like at a lot of these schools, especially the more elite ones, that reality is turned on its head. The fixation on identity and race and all of that is overwhelming. The American people want virtually no part of it, and yet the opposite is what has been made systemic. I would argue in an unconstitutional way in a number of cases, and the Supreme Court will weigh in next year on that. In case you're curious, large majorities of every racial group in the country is opposed to race being a factor at all in college admissions. All right, 74% overall saying not a factor. That includes 79% of white people, 59% of black people, 68% of Hispanics, and 63% of Asian Americans. Across the spectrum, 
lopsided majorities are against this. Consider how far out of touch the elite consensus is with that. This is what people actually believe. But in those institutions, not just colleges and universities, but a lot of big corporations, foundations, etc., that little ossified reality in the rarefied air is precisely the opposite. And perhaps we will start to get closer to an equilibrium where people are judged on their merit and their character and not immutable characteristics. Because that latter approach, I think, is fundamentally unfair, and the vast majority of Americans clearly believe that to be the case. We'll break. We'll come back. Molly Hemingway is here next. Stay with us. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, it's the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website, podcast free on demand after the program every day. With us now is Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief at The Federalist. She's a Fox News contributor, author of Rigged. She's at MZ Hemingway on Twitter. And Molly, it is great to have you back. Great to be here with you. So you guys had a story, I believe it was you and Tristan Justice at The Federalist this week, about some text messages that were unearthed featuring Cassidy Hutchinson, who was one of the January 6th committee witnesses. We talked about this issue on Gutfeld earlier in the week when I was a guest. Give us the gist of what you guys discovered and reported. So when Cassidy Hutchinson testified at the J6 committee, she was billed as having far and away the most explosive testimony of anyone who had appeared in that single-party-run committee. And she was the one who said that President Trump had lunged for the steering wheel, um, had tried to beat up Secret Service agents, and all sorts of really salacious things. And the story that Tristan and I wrote was based on about 18 months of text messages that were quite consistent from before January 6th until May, dealing with how she claimed she had not witnessed any wrongdoing, how she was quite the Trump fan up until months ago, how she had looked forward to a second term of the Trump uh, administration, how she had absolutely nothing to report to the J6 committee, that they were a phony committee. She was quite critical in a really interesting way about Liz Cheney and her political positions. And it was just fascinating because Well, she said that she wanted at one point, she said that she would want to shoot herself rather than see Joe Biden (laughs) flying in Air Force One or something. It was a little dramatic. Well, she said she would rather shoot herself into the Potomac dead than see anyone other than Trump flying around in Marine One around D.C. Yeah, so this isn't – and she she was wearing Trump gear and dealing with people – mocking people who called her an insurrectionist. She was frankly making light of the riot up until quite recently. And it was just really interesting because these were all her private communications with friends, with a bunch of different friends and associates. And the difference between what she was saying consistently and what she testified to was really striking. So here's the thing about this. You and I have a different perspective. We share some ideas, but we have a different perspective overall about the January 6th committee. You're more critical of it than I am. You're more critical of Liz Cheney than I am. That's all fine. I think... This information that you guys unearthed and then reported about 
is useful information about judging the credibility of a witness. I'm not saying that she lied on the stand. I'm not saying that she didn't witness some of the things that she's testified to. But if you had people on the committee who at least were willing to push some of the witnesses and ask questions that might not just fit one narrative from the get-go, I think that might give us an opportunity as the American people to get a more fulsome picture of what actually happened and getting really to the truth of everything that happened or did not happen. And part of that, I would say, is the Republicans making a decision to kind of clear the battlefield and cede it to the Democrats and to anti-Trump Republicans. But just for the good of the country, for those of us like me who believe that we could get a complete or at least fairly comprehensive picture out of this, I actually think it would be a service to the country to have people on the panel who would at least on some level represent a different idea or perspective and could confront someone like Ms. Hutchinson with these texts and get an explanation from her and and push her and prod her a little bit on her credibility and sort of justifying some of this stuff, reconciling some of this stuff. But that's not the way the committee is operating. So I think that this piece that you guys wrote at least helps underscore that point. That's where I come at it from. But you are exactly right in what you say is a big takeaway there, which is regardless of what your views are on anything, the concept of due process, which is something that we do have pretty securely in our criminal defense trials, but is really so much bigger than just criminal defense trials. There are ancient proverbs like in scripture about the importance of hearing from multiple sides of the story in order to determine the truth. And people keep saying, oh, well, these people are under oath. Well, being under oath doesn't mean much if you're not challenged under oath. And nobody's being challenged under oath in a way that will lead to the truth. And so everyone who cares about truth and fairness and the country should strongly defend the principles of due process and the importance of having adversarial positions anytime you're, you know, Anytime you're even trying to go after someone, it's to your own benefit if you test your suppositions with contrary viewpoints. And so this is something that worries me even more than a very bad political riot that was horrible. You know, I worry much more about whether we're losing our belief that predates our country but has been so strong throughout our country's history of due process. And my thing on January 6th overall is – It was self-evidently terrible in the moment, and I think a lot of what I needed to know about what happened and why it happened, we knew within a couple of days, which is not to say that an investigation is not important and it's unworthy of our time and attention. I just think the big bulk takeaway, for me at least, was very clear as day on that day and the day after. And so I'm just going to leave that there for now. I also want to ask you, Molly, about this because I mentioned your book, Rigged. You also co-authored a book called Justice on Trial about the Kavanaugh Confirmation Circus. A couple questions on SCOTUS for you. Number one, I don't know if you saw the report, but apparently the would-be assassin who showed up at Justice Kavanaugh's house armed to the teeth to try to murder him, he was deterred by the officers who were there protecting the justice and his family, thank God, This suspect reportedly wanted to kill at least two other justices as well, had an Internet search history that was very disturbing along these lines. You probably saw it because you follow this pretty closely, but this story just vanished from the media 
it, it barely made a blip the day that it happened, and then by that Sunday, it did not appear as a topic on any of the Sunday morning shows except Fox News Sunday. This is a new-ish development, and I have seen it almost nowhere. Well, I'm glad that you're covering it, and I'm glad that you know about it, because I think people don't realize how much more dangerous this was than we than it would appear from the Washington Post and other media outlets covering it, uh, because Carrie Severino and I got to write a book on the Kavanaugh confirmation. You know, we've talked with people close to the situation who say it was very, very bad and, very, and much worse than people realize. And it's not surprising that the person wanted to go after multiple justices when Chuck Schumer threatened Brett Kavanaugh from the steps of the Supreme Court saying he would reap the whirlwind if he didn't vote the way. Well, he mentioned Gorsuch, too, by name. He also mentioned Gorsuch by name. Mm -hmm. And then there also has been long running campaigns of hatred towards Justice Thomas, Justice Alito and Justice Barrett. So I'm not surprised that he that this um, disturbed person wanted to go after multiple people. I'm also much more concerned that people who should be in divisions of authority, haven't condemned it more, and haven't done anything to stop inciting people in this direction. You know, if you really believe that how you talk is important and, you know, if you're going to impeach someone over saying march peacefully to the Capitol, certainly we should have more to be said about people who are actually saying do whatever it takes to to get back to country. Well, it's against the law, right? It's against federal law to harass and intimidate judges, federal judges at their houses, And I have not seen any prosecutions of the people who are doing exactly that over and over again. They went to Kavanaugh's house to do that same thing outside his home the day after the assassin was caught. I mean, that's wild. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts has had these people at his house as well. And it just keeps going. And a lot of the top level Democrats in the country, including inside the White House, won't even condemn that. Meanwhile, Justice Alito who wrote the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade, he gave a speech in Rome in which he mocked foreign critics of the decision. And a lot of the criticism from foreign leaders was just on its face ignorant. They clearly did not know what the decision meant, what the backstory was, what any of the context was, especially looking at what their own abortion laws are in their own countries. It was just, you know, this festival of preening and ignorance and virtue signaling, or I would call it in this case, anti-virtue signaling. Justice Alito, who, of course, wrote that famous decision, addressed it in Cut 22. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders. (laughs) who felt perfectly fine commenting on American law. One of these was uh, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson, but he paid the price. (laughs) Post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? (laughs) But others are still still in office. President Macron and uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, I believe, are two. But what really wounded me, what really wounded me, was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the (laughs) United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. Now, Molly, this clip went around left-wing social media like it reflects poorly on Alito. I had a very different view of this. I saw the clip. I'm like, oh, go off, King. I love it. 
I love that it actually shows his humor, too, because uh, you could read those quotes and not quite detect just what, how excellent his timing is. But it's also the perfect response, the disdain, or not to say, I mean, just the mockery is good. These people knew nothing of what they spoke of. They didn't even realize that his ruling that he authored, and that was very balanced, nearly takes the United States back to the Western world. Yep. The Western world can have restrictions on abortions and has been able to forever. It's China and North Korea that don't permit these things. But you can you can do restrictions in France and in England and in Spain. And that was something we couldn't do in this country. We were the ones that were out of step with Western democracy. And they didn't know that. They just fell for these lies from their other liberal cohorts. And they should be mocked for not knowing what they talked about before they talked. Lastly, Molly, I want to play you this soundbite. It was from our show yesterday. I had Sarah Huckabee Sanders here. And I asked her if she, as press secretary... And the Trump administration had experienced back-to-back quarters of negative GDP growth. And they decided they were just going to say, well, that's not the definition of a recession anymore. How would that have gone over? Would the press have been instantly accommodating to the new definition? And Sarah's response was very to the point in Cut 23. Oh, it it would have been awful. They would have, I probably would have made, wouldn't have made it out of that room alive. (laughs) Molly, your reaction. Well, we, uh, we even know what it was like, because even when there was a situation of a global pandemic that nobody in this country, you know, planned or could have predicted, they still were quite harsh on President Trump and his administration when we went through the economic downturn there. But this is beyond anything. I mean, you had the same people who just months ago would acknowledge that the common definition of a recession is two quarters of negative growth, suddenly doing their best to spin away from that disturbing it's destabilizing it's weird when people are trying to redefine reality it is and weird. it's also just, it's so arrogant because we all are living through it we all know that our money is going less far and that gas is expensive and that you know that the market is what it is it's not like you can truly redefine reality given those situations but it's just amazing molly hemingway editor-in-chief at the federalist a fox news contributor her books are justice on trial which she co-authored with carrie severino And her latest book, which she wrote solo, is Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections, at M.Z. Hemingway. Coming up after the break, I'm going to briefly mention the Electoral Count Reform Act. I know you and I were at a dinner recently, and it seems like even from a conservative perspective, it's actually a pretty good bill. I keep talking to people who say it's pretty well done, very balanced, and obviously, like, again, regardless of what you think, January 6th showed us there need to be reforms here on this bill um, or on this on this uh, issue. And so it would be good to have responsible people do that. I agree. Molly, thank you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. We will step aside and come right back and talk about that very issue next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back here on the Guy Benson show still to come Fridays with Kat. That's in the next hour, the happy hour upcoming on The Guy Benson Show. Well, we just talked about it ever so briefly with Molly Hemingway. And I would commend to you and recommend this piece in National Review from the editors. It's a House editorial called Time to Pass Electoral Count Reform. And they go through in specific detail a number of reasons why a bill, a compromise bill, put together by Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and others, is worthy of support. 
And I read the editorial. I thought it was well done. I was already basically there. This helped convince me further. There are a number of Republicans that I trust who are behind this effort. And it stems from January 6th and all of the drama leading up to that day. And some of the, I think, clearly wrong and unconstitutional claims made by some people, including former President Trump, that, for instance, Vice President Pence at the time could have just rejected some electors, even though it was widely understood that his role was only ministerial. He couldn't have done that, but Trump insisted that he could, which is why a lot of people got very angry at Mike Pence and were chanting things like, hang Mike Pence at the Capitol during the riot. There were other questions also about competing slates of electors. What would happen in the future if something like this were a little bit more sophisticated or better planned? Could there have been a true constitutional crisis? And how would it be resolved? So there's been this bipartisan effort to clarify the process just to remove ambiguity. This is what happens. This is how it happens. This is not what is allowed. This is what the vice president's role is and is not, et cetera, et cetera. And unfortunately, some Democrats have proposed much more far reaching, much more liberal, quote unquote, solutions to this. And they want to tack on and fill in a bunch of left wing goodies in there. That would never see the light of day. Republicans would never agree to it. And for this type of thing to pass and have real legitimacy, it needs to have strong, across-the-board, bipartisan support. And so the bipartisan group that did this, not the ad hoc, more lefty approaches, but the bipartisan working group, the product that they came up with was actually quite good. And I talked to someone, as I referenced with Molly, we were at a dinner together with someone who's a real expert on elections and election law from a conservative standpoint, who is credible, who went over this legislation, this proposal with a fine-tooth comb, looking for poison pills, looking for something that may have been snuck in there that would cause a problem. And his conclusion was, this is actually quite well done. This is solid. It is limited. It is discreet for the problems that actually were presented, and it doesn't get into mission creep or anything like that. And so I think it is worthy of support. I encourage you to read that National Review editorial really explaining why the Wall Street Journal has endorsed it as well. They've written about it at the editorial board. And now the question is for Chuck Schumer, who runs the Senate and the timeline over there and the floor schedule, are they going to prioritize this? We've had a huge amount of effort on the January 6th committee and primetime hearings and all of that. Here's a concrete step to actually secure our democracy, if that's how you want to put it. And it is very wide bipartisan support, and it's sensible and limited and sound. Prioritize that. Clear out some of the other noise in the partisanship. Is he capable of doing that? Is he willing to do that? Or are they going to allow this moment to slip through their fingers because they're more interested in other partisan adventures on other subjects? I guess we'll see. Last hour of the Guy Benson Show of the week is coming up. As I mentioned, Cat Tim on deck. Stay with us.
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday. Happy Friday. Glad to have you here. One more hour of the program until the weekend, and we are all here together enjoying it. Thank you for listening. Three to six Eastern every weekday, and there's a podcast, which is free, on demand every day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, you can follow us Twitter and Instagram. Catch me on Sunday morning. Fox News Sunday. Brett Baer will be anchoring. I think I saw they have Senator Joe Manchin. That could be very interesting. And I'll be reacting to all of it on the panel. Check your local listings. That is Sunday morning. And this hour of this radio program brought to you by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic, delicious, refreshing, etc. I recommend it. Many of you reach out to me as you try the long drink, and the reviews have been rave. Because it's just good. I'm not lying to you. TheLongDrink.com is their website. Everything you need right there. You can find out where they're sold near you. They're expanding all over the place. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With us now here in studio in New York is Kat Timpf, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld, also co-host of the Tyrus and Timpf podcast. And Kat, I've seen a lot of you this week, and mm-hmm. I'm delighted. It is good to see you yet again. It's so great to be here. That was I'm convincing. De- I am delighted. That was so convincing. I am delighted. No, of course. It's always great. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. So I was on Gutfeld with you guys on, was it Wednesday night, I think? Super fun. Excellent show. A lot of laughs. Dean Kane was there. Then the next night, last night, you guys had, what's his name? The, like the Southern actor who everyone's- Leslie seen. Jordan. Yeah. Let's talk about that. He's How did you great. guys book him? Because he's like- Pretty famous, right? I know. I guess he like knew, knew Greg or something. I, I don't know. Like I, I, he, I saw him at the. I met him at the White House correspondence dinner, and we hit it off. And I, I guess he knew the show. I mean, he was great. It was a really fun episode. We all had a really good time. Who do you guys have tonight? Oh boy, let me think. Tyrus. We have Tyrus. We have me. Uh, why can't? Why am I blacking out right now? Well, Charlie Hurt, Katie Pavlich, and Katie Pavlich. I saw Katie's dress. Because she was getting made up for the show, and she walked out of the makeup room, and I gasped because this is she is like bringing it in this oh, dress great. tonight. Great, I'm wearing a dress that I hate. Well, Ugh. you don't have to. It's not a competition. No, I mean, but I know you're very competitive. I'm already bummed out about wearing the dress that I hate. I don't have enough clothes, and I need more. But I hate I hate shopping. Well, that's maybe the problem. Yeah, I just <laughs> like, want them to magically appear in my size that look clothes that look great on me in my office. Your competitiveness was on full display last night. You and I were on Kennedy together. And it was kind of weird because in the A block at the start of the show, there was a panel and we were talking about, you know, recession and serious issues. And then one of the panelists went away when the panel returned and we were all in boxes, Mm -hmm. like on the screen in the first segment. And then we were all on set with Kennedy and they just swapped you in for Kevin Walling, who was gone. Yeah. I guess he, he couldn't come to New York, and this was an in-person game show that we were going to play called Word on the Street. Yes. And it was 
I had seen it before on the show. I had never played it myself as a contestant with Kennedy. And the premise, I guess, is her producers get slang terms and slang words from Gen Z, which is the generation below ours. We're, we're both millennials. And I won. Yes, I was getting to that. But thank you. I just That's went. the most important part. I didn't just win a little bit. I won by a lot, a lot. Well, not really, actually. So no. we can we can go back to the scoreboard, and I have the box score right here. I mean, you won. So the way it would work is Kennedy would give the word one at a time to each of us, a word, and then you would have to say or guess what it meant. And if you were correct, two points. If you needed it used in a sentence like from a spelling bee, mm-hmm. and then you got it right, you get one point, if not zero. You did win six points. I got four points, and poor Jason Chaffetz. He did not do well. Just lost. He did not do well. He seemed lost. It was was embarrassing. He got one point, and that was generous. It was generous. It was a. It was a kind of point. Yeah, he gave him a point. Like, oh, that's okay. Like, (laughs) like one for you. Yeah, it was a pity point. He didn't really earn it. So you were extremely, one might say, even overly excited. Yeah, winning this game. You were. I was there to win. Pumping your fists in the air. Of course. As one does. Sort of flaunting it. Yeah. I wonder, like, why do you know all this stuff? Because you are, in fact, not Gen Z. No, I'm going to be 34 in October. <laughs> yeah, so you're not, like, yeah. a youngster. But you said, like, hello, and you said all these things. Yes. Do you watch television shows that allow you to know these things? Do you hang out with teenagers for no reason? Like, why were you so good at this? I suppose I don't know. I mean, like, maybe some of the just things I see on Instagram, hmm. you know? Uh, and you do watch... Some trashy but entertaining I, uh, yes. television. I watch trash trash TV, and a lot of the people in that are, are younger. So maybe that's why, you know? It makes sense. Because you were very confident. You were like, duh. Yeah. Hello. Hello. I was, I was killing it. I was absolutely killing it. And you called me old. And I was like, how I dare you? I'm a youth. Yeah, I did call you old. I think, I think by cable news standards, I am... Well, yeah, well, we're both children by cable news standards. <laughs> we're both like little babies. <laughs> so you were so excited and sort of like rubbing it in my face that you won. Yeah, of course. I wanted to set up a game here on the show for us that I am guaranteed basically to win. So you will lose. Is it I Guy Benson trivia about Guy Benson? No, but it's it's ready. It's about college sports and it's name oh. that fight song. So we're gonna go oh, I'm, I'm going to go oh for We're going to oh, go through a bunch a of million. fight songs, okay. and then if you can get them, then you win. But if I can get them, then I win. Okay? Well, you know what? You picked them. You know all of them. I didn't pick this them. This is a rigged game. I had them, I had them all. I, I, many people are saying last night was rigged. No, they're not. Many people are saying. I actually did not plan this at all. We have no fight songs, but I would win that game. Oh, I was excited. I was ready to go. You were excited. Just like I love to compete. Schools. I love You're to like, compete. like Kalamazoo State. Yeah, I love to compete. You're going to try anyway. Yeah. I do want to ask you about, since we were mentioning sort of social media and the influence of that, have you seen kind of this push recently to have Instagram revert back to what Instagram used to be, which is photographs as opposed to constant videos i feel like and who was complaining one of the celebrities kylie jenner was kylie jenner make it instagram again sometimes i go onto my instagram feed and i have to scroll forever until i find not a video and it does kind of annoy me really i like the videos it's a great it's great if your discover is just sitting on the couch you just scroll through it you need to kill like three hours which social media platforms do you have I have well, I have Facebook, but I never use it, which is I why should, I forget everyone's birthday now. I should use it. Like more. I know I miss telling everyone happy birthday because I'm never on Facebook, and that's like the only way you really know. 
Uh, Instagram and Twitter, really, is what I use. Those are my big three. Yeah. Do you have Snapchat? I, I have it, but I never use it. Do you have TikTok? Uh, I, I had TikTok, I think, for, like, the pandemic when I was really bored, but I don't use it. Like, that was in, like, I'm talking, like, spring of 2020. I okay, it was a brief moment Very in time. Very brief moment De- in time. A dark chapter. Yeah, really dark. Desperate. I've never had Snapchat or TikTok, and I'm one of those, like, grouchy right-wingers who's like, it's a CCP espionage tool, which it is, by the I'm way. I'm sure it is. Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah. yeah. I'm not disputing is. that. Yeah. But I also just don't have the bandwidth for more than this. Between Twitter and Instagram, I am overwhelmed. My headspace is full. I'm busy, and I know that it's hard for me because I would be so good at TikTok, I think. Like, I think I would be good at it. We just mentioned Kylie Jenner, right? She's one of the younger Kardashians. She's the youngest. Youngest. Is she she the supermodel? No, that's Kendall. Kendall. I'm obviously not good at this. There's too many of them. There's so many K names. It's a lot. But... There was a controversy surrounding her where I guess she has a private jet. Yes. And she flew it 15 minutes. She took a 15-minute flight to avoid traffic in Southern California. and She the, drove 30 minutes in the opposite direction to get to the airport. Is that true? Yeah, that's what I saw as well. But I kind of – look, wouldn't you – I don't know if I would do that. Mm. I Now, I know people are mad at her from an environmental standpoint, which like – that's not at the top of my list. Yeah. Like, You're an environmental terrorist. I don't think it's a great use of that mode of transportation, right? I mean, I'm not I, – I'll be honest here. I, I mean, I mean, I'm about to sound like a real woman of the people, but I'm actually not familiar with that mode of transportation. I've never been on a PJ. Neither have I. Never been on a PJ, ever. You know what? This is a problem. We should probably just shamelessly start begging. I know. For someone in this audience or in the Gutfeld audience or both. Yeah. Who has a private jet. We know you're out there. I know. I know you're out there. You're listening right now. Yeah. And you're like, oh, they're talking about me. Just slide into a DM. Instagram, we've just told you. Yes. What's your handle? At At Cat Timp. And honestly, you can check. We talked about PJs on Outnumbered, like, I think this week or last week I was on. I have been very certain to never say anything negative about the use of a PJ. No. I am 100% pro-PJ, if you look at my record, okay, pro-PJ. And that is on purpose. It sounds like you're running for office. That is on purpose. Cat 100%. Every everyone who owns a PJ out there to know I'm on your side of your you and your PJ. <laughs> so, uh, so don't forget that when you're deciding who to invite on the trip. It's at Cat Timf. Yes. I'm at Guy P Benson. Just pick us up for a little spin. Yeah, yeah. And I've I'm, never been in one. I've never been in one. I'd love to. And I'm an aviation weirdo in a lot of ways. See, I'm not. Choose me. I'm a. I'm just a fun hang. But I'm both. I'm a really fun hang. Wow. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm the funnest hang in the world. You know that. Well, yes. It's very uh, high energy. Yes. It's a whole roller coaster of emotion. Yes. You'll get your money's worth. Yes. My my husband always tells me that every day I wake up, I have no idea what day I'm going to (laughs) have. I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) get. The thing, this is what a weirdo I am. My one downside, I would think, to flying private, if someone were to invite me, I can't afford this at all. Mm -hmm. Like, I've occasionally just on a lark been like, okay, we want to get from point A to point B. We want to bring Roy, our dog. Yep. Private jet would be great. Is there any way, and I will Google estimates, and it's just astronomical. It's just not even remotely possible at this stage of my life. So it's like, oh, well. But if I did fly private somewhere, I would be giving up the opportunity to earn 
mileage Miles. plus United points, which is something weird in my brain where it's like, why are you flying and not earning from the flying? Yeah. That's where my brain goes. Yeah, we're going we're, we're going on a, you know, a, a trip. Like, we're finally going to do, like, our honeymoon, basically. We're going to be flying around Europe. And I'm like, I can't fly Delta. So, like, anywhere. So I'm flying around and not getting any points. But you can do the long hauls on Delta, like the over yeah. and back, right? Yeah, 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 That's yeah. where the real miles accrue. Some of them. Where are you still- going? Where and when? End of August. We're going to start. We're going to go to Greece, and then we're going to go to Italy, and then we're going to go to Berlin. I think we're going to be seeing you in Greece. Sure will. So excited about sure that. Sure will. We could do some radio over there. I'm just kidding. We're not doing any work. And then you said Berlin? I'm going to, then we're going to Italy, and then we're going to Berlin. Oh, have you been to these places before? No. Oh, okay. Where, so excited. Where in Italy are you going? Like Tuscany, Florence, like that area. Yes. I'm so excited. I'm yes. taking off two weeks, which I've never done in my entire life. Two weeks? I have done it once. And it was for my honeymoon. That's what we're doing, yeah. yeah. So are you guys going to get, like, a villa situation in Tuscany? We're not sure. We have, like, all the accommodations booked for, like, Germany, but not, not – we don't know I yet. was so excited for Italy because of the food. Are you excited about food? Do you ever get excited about food? See, yeah, no. I, I'm more of a, you know, eat to live, not live to eat. Yeah. So that was – I'm sure you can guess which – City was who's pick. Uh-huh. You're like, I'm like, I want to go to Berlin. They actually don't have bad food in Berlin either. Yeah. So Berlin, just very quickly, is we're just like talking about our plans yeah. at this point. Sorry, guys. You're not invited. But. <laughs> well, but but there's no PJ involved. Yeah. To our knowledge, what if you get a PJ just to bounce you guys around Europe? I'm available for that. And you're again, open, if any anyone with the PJ would like to thank me for my, uh, you know, unabashed, just strong defense. Boosterism. Yeah, of the PJ. Like, I, I would accept that. Like, you're you're someone who would run for office one day, and your opponents would be trying to attack you as an elitist yeah. with video of you coming out of a private jet. Right. And you would say, oh, no, here's more footage of me yes. coming out of this <laughs> yeah, private exactly. jet. exactly. Use this footage. This angle like, well, yeah, I would say, look, that's not my good side, so uh, <laughs> that is a really just shady, shady politics. But- Quickly in Berlin, there's a lot of interesting history there, obviously. There's crazy nightlife. Yeah. One thing on the more serious, not super fun honeymoon side of things, but still I recommend, you go to East Berlin, you can go to Stasi headquarters and see the belly of the beast of, like, pure evil. Mm. And it is chilling, but also as someone who loves freedom and hates communism, I think it would make an impact on you. Okay. And I think you would actually, in a weird way, kind of enjoy it mm. and to recognize that they lost. Right. As they deserve to. Right. So that's my fun. Sure, I'm glad about that. My big, uh, my big honeymoon tip for you is you <laughs> go to Stasi Prison in East Berlin. So enjoy that. Thank you. I had other topics here. All right, let's do one more after the break. Stick around. Cat Tim for my guest on The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back on the happy hour on this Friday. Cat Timp is with us here in studio, which we always enjoy. And actually, we talked about this a little bit last night on Kennedy's show after the game show that, yes, you won. It was an actress that I hadn't really heard of, but an interesting story. Sydney Sweeney, someone I'd never heard of, but I guess a starlet. Yes. 23, 24 years old. She is publicly complaining that she doesn't make enough money for being a star of her caliber. She said enough to survive. She says she can barely survive her lifestyle in L.A. Now, she lives in a $3 million house. Right. And I was sort of like, okay, I get it. I'm sure people around you are even richer. 
and you're trying to pay your bills. You don't come from money. You're still very young. The line where it really lost me was where she was fretting that she couldn't afford to just take six months off if she wanted to. Who's taken six months off? Ever. Ever. Nobody like, takes. I don't know anybody. Retirement. Yeah, yeah. You're, when you death. Take, yeah, 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 yeah. You take six months off. You're taking a, uh, another six months after that. You're done. You're done. You're not doing. No one's like, ah, you know, six months sabbatical. You and I are sitting here like, can we whisper about the one time we took two weeks? In I a know. Row? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, what's it going to be like to have two weeks? It, like, it's crazy. I've never done it. What do you think? Since you've never done it, it's hard to have perspective because sometimes the idea of taking just a few months and just traveling and doing nothing and being on vacation it sounds awesome i also know myself yeah, and i, I think it. i would get bored at a certain point what in your mind would be the absolute maximum fun length of a vacation uh maybe three yeah i'm like i, I don't think i could do a full month i don't think so and i think three would be pushing it yeah at a certain point you want to get back into it that's why I worry about having a kid someday because then oh, you got to just stay leave. home. with. I don't want a long maternity leave. I'll just give birth at work. <laughs> you just have an wanna, infant? Yeah. You have an infant like in a papoose on gut fat? I don't see why. I don't see. Is that a lot? I'm not allowed? It's a fifth a fifth <laughs> panelist. Is, yeah. Is that not allowed? I don't know what the policy is on yeah. that. But you can look into it if and when the day comes. Yeah. You don't want to just sit there with a baby. Well, I guess it'd be my baby, but still. Right, you said that with such know. disdain. It would be your child. Be no one's fault but my own. <laughs> well, and arguably well, I, Cam's. Yeah, that also. You would, you would that's, hope. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Or a player to be named later. <laughs> it is a sports Let's reference. Let's get that rumor going. <laughs> well, the rumor was last time you were here, they the rumor was on the that internet. That I was pregnant. They, not very, true. very not pregnant. Very not pregnant. Very not pregnant. Mm-hmm. Still. Still. Can confirm. Can confirm. Okay. Cat Timpf. Well, this was not what I expected. Never is. It rarely is. That is true. It is good to see you. Always good to see you. Gottfeld tonight with the regular crew, plus Charlie Hurt, plus Katie Pavlich, 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel. See you next time. Yeah. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour, and we will be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Almost the weekend on the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. But first, this. Earlier today, we chatted with Dagan McDowell of Fox News and Fox Business about all of the economic news that went down this week. She broke it down. Here's that conversation. They won't define recession. Our, our Collectively, our definition, they say, is wrong. But they won't define it differently. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre also said we're not even in a pre-recession. That's something that she said. I don't know what that means. President says the economy is moving in the right direction. He said that yesterday, took no questions. And one of the things that they point out is employment is strong. Jobs are plentiful, strong labor market, low unemployment. That's number one. Number two, you look at the markets. Like right now, the Dow's up 367 points. It was up yesterday. Isn't that kind of a weird reaction to a recession? The investors think that the Federal Reserve is not going to – is not going to hike interest rates even to 4%. They're really betting that Jay Powell and companies stop raising rates at probably 3% at the end of the year. I think Jay Powell screwed up uh, saying that we were near neutral, which means that the rate is neither um, – uh, it neither stimulates the economy or suppresses it, suppresses mm-hmm. growth. 
what so I think the markets have got it wrong. I think the markets are reading because Jay the, Powell because wrong. Because the Fed has it wrong? No, they've been because wrong. they're just reading it. They think Jay Powell is going to be okay, you so, know, a weakling, a Biden and company weakling who's not – as Fed chief not going to get tough on inflation. Uh, that being said, employment. Mm-hmm. Employment is the laggingest of indicators, as, to quote Stephanie Pomboy, who's a, a great uh, market uh, follower and – Economist, it it is the last thing that goes up. Mm. It is the last thing that you want to to pay attention to. What does start cratering first is housing starts weakening, and we're seeing that, that happen this okay? week. Right, we're already seeing it. Pending home sales; yeah. these are contracts for existing homes fell at more than eight and a half percent month over month, down twenty percent from a year ago, just because rate mortgage rates hadn't even gotten to six percent. So that starts. Then you start watching. The jobless claims, the weekly jobless claims, people filing for unemployment benefits, that starts ticking up, already is ticking up this year. So it's slow. But the 100-year history of this is when you start removing money from the economy and raising rates, that, that just one thing after another. Dominoes. It just dominoes. And one of the last dominoes. It's one of the most predictable things. And the fact that these people <laughs> careful. are in Washington. Radio, careful. Yeah. In Washington, are standing up there saying, "Well, they they it's don't the right know direction. what they're talking about." They're, they, how, how can you say that it's when the economy is contracting? It's, it's the wild. right direction, and tax and spend. So they're going to spend more money to juice inflation, and they're going to lay well, a tax on corporations. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get to that because we can parse the words of the president and his press secretary all we want. It's she said, I guess, on the view that they're just in the middle of a transition to. Sustainable growth is what we're seeing, even though we've had two consecutive quarters of negative growth with the inflation happening. It's just it it doesn't make any sense. When they took office, the economy was growing at four and a half percent and inflation was below one and a half percent. They had almost no inflation and extremely strong growth. All they had to do was coast and do nothing, mm. bupkis, not niente, and the economy would be fine. Their policies have actively destroyed our standard of living and our way of life. They made it worse. They made it worse. And now, and we were just about to get into this, Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin have this plan, this proposal, and it, I think they're going to pass this or something close to this. They don't have all the ducks in a row yet. We'll see. Maybe it'll implode, which would be great. But – what they are proposing to do is, in the middle of inflation, spend more money, a lot more money, mm-hmm. new money, number one. And number two, with a recession here and perhaps getting worse down the line, they want to raise taxes on the American people, on businesses. And I know sometimes that polls well. Oh, they're they're just taxing corporations. The Tax Foundation ran the numbers on that type of tax increase, and it reduces GDP and reduces jobs. What are you doing That would be a bad idea ever, but especially with this recession here, it just seems like a crazy thing to do. But what you hear Biden saying is Larry Summers, who they ignore all the time and we quote all the time because he was right on inflation. He's been right on recession. He's basically endorsed the bill saying this is good. It will help fight inflation. What's the response to that? Because, you know, he seems to have at least been a pretty intellectually honest, credible person. He's signing on to this thing, apparently, even though as a non-expert to me, it seems nuts. Well, one, the, these bills never raise the amount of revenue that they say they are. That so in terms true. of the deficit reduction, I even 
like a cursory glance at it when it first came out, I thought that the, the targets on the, the revenue raise in this are absolutely ridiculous. Well, a lot of it is they want to double the size of the IRS to come cracking down on people. Right. And we know that. Oh, oh, so, okay. So you, rich people who have tax attorneys and yeah, just armies of tax attorneys will fine. do fine. So you're going to crack down on the middle class That's who right. are already struggling mightily yes. and can't pay lawyers. Yes. Okay. Good idea. Great, <laughs> great political move. Too. Uh-huh. But in, in terms of raising tax, you're going to, when companies are struggling, and companies struggle just with the inflation. You look at Walmart, it makes it impossible to manage a business. You don't know, you got goods coming in, and you don't know how to price them correctly. It, it makes it Small business, big business, it makes it an absolute nightmare trying to manage it. But they're going to take raise taxes, so you're taking money away from businesses that they would use to expand and hire and pay their workers or more. Or retain, right? If they're worried about jobs going right. away at some point, that's less money to do oh, that. And one of the reasons that employment, even in a very high inflationary environment, the, the employment will stay stable. This is straight from Kevin Hassett. Employment will look stable, but – it's because companies aren't laying people off because their wages are plummeting when adjusting for inflation. So they're essentially sitting back and not paying them more, n- not giving them raises. The wages are actually plummeting, so they don't really have to lay people off, if that makes sense. It does. It just it doesn't sound great for workers. No, everything that's going on right now. And the layoffs still could come at some point anyway, though. I can use this. Everything that's going on right now in this economy, it sucks. It sucks for individuals. It sucks for workers. It sucks for business owners, small business operators, CEOs, on down the line, people in management. It is – they've created a world of suckitude. It is a black <laughs> hole of idiocy. For that entire discussion, you can go to GuyBensonShow.com. Yours truly interviewing Dagan McDowell. It's also on the podcast, which is the whole show, every day – for free, on demand. What a deal. Plus, bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, the Mega Millions lottery jackpot is now over a billion dollars. We were having a debate within the team about whether to play the lottery. Is it fun? Is it silly? Lots of opinions. We'll discuss right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. Tune in Sunday morning for Fox News Sunday. I will be on the panel. You can check your local listings for that. Brett Bayer is in the anchor chair on Sunday. It is the last day of producer Christine's vacation. So she'll be back here on Monday. We will get all the scoop from her. We've tried the last couple of days. Yesterday and today, Quiet Wyatt tried to book Cookie just for a few minutes to get on the cell phone and give us a vacation update. We forced Wyatt to do it at Disney World when he was down there, and Christine has blown him off twice. It's outrageous. Very selfish. Rude, actually, if you think about it. What was it, last week that she's like, oh, God, you're my best friend, best birthday ever, Backstreet Boys, backstage passes, amazing. And then a few, how quickly she forgets, just a week later, 
multiple days in a row, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't get on a phone for five to seven minutes. You know what? What we should have done, we should have gone Kim Strassel on her. You should have started calling Christine at 3 o'clock in the morning just to harass her. That's an inside joke here at the show. That's what she did to Kimberly Strassel. She forgot about time zones, but we would not have forgotten. This would have been intentional. So do you think Christine might get an earful on Monday during the home stretch? Like, oh, we'll do a fun vacation update, and then Prosecutor Benson shows up. It's like Jack McCoy walking into the courtroom all of a sudden. So we might go there. We'll see. Meanwhile, here today, I was surprised to learn that both of the guys on the show across the glass, Dan and Wyatt, play the lottery sometimes, or their families do. I have never done it because, to me, it's just so ridiculous. Like, you have no chance of winning. Not none, but it's very close to zero. And the higher the number gets of the jackpot and the more people play, the closer to zero your chances get. Now, I realize if that was everyone's mentality, the lottery wouldn't work, it wouldn't be a thing, and you wouldn't have winners, and there are winners. Although a lot of them end up going broke and having their families destroyed and all this kind of thing. And I think we've talked about that briefly on the show before. It's just not something that I've ever done. I've had the slightest temptation from time to time when my brain starts to wander to what I would do with a billion dollars because the mega millions is now over a billion. Now, I think the government would take close to half of that, but you would still have, what, close to $600 million if you were to win it all. What would I do? And... My brain starts going different directions. I would do this. I would not do that. And then the feeling passes. And I never take the next step of going to some convenience store or something and buying a ticket. It's just, it's not for me. But obviously many, many people disagree. Wyatt, you bought a ticket for this current round of the lottery, the national lottery, I guess it is. You didn't win. Do you have to buy another ticket after, like, a winner or a ticket is announced? No one claims it, so it rolls over. The the lump sum gets bigger and bigger. Can you hold on to your old ticket and keep hoping that that number gets called, or do you have to buy a new ticket? You have to buy a new ticket. But, guy, I have to just say, I mean, you've never played the lottery. Like, even when you were, like, 18 years old and you could start betting, you didn't, like, get lottery tickets for your first day? Like no. I've gotten people have given me as a gift like scratch off cards. So you take a quarter out of your pocket and scratch it off. I never win anything. And that's it. That's the closest I've come to playing. I also don't really gamble either. But I guess there's more. That's at least a form of entertainment where you're doing something actively. This is just kind of sitting there and waiting. I like the idea of winning. I just think it's so incredibly unlikely and far fetched with the odds infinitesimally stacked against me that I just don't spend money on the ticket. That's going to just be a little scrap of garbage very soon. But guy, you got to be in it to win it. I feel like I'm like Christine on this one. I feel like this is exactly what Christine would say, but you got to be in it to win it. And you know, everyone has that fantasy of winning the lottery. And are you going to buy another ticket here? Yeah. Yeah. There's this machine in one of of the rest areas when you go down the, the garden state parkway. And I went to it the other day and it's like this machine and it's touchscreen, and so you tap which ones you want, and then it, it 
shoots them out. It's actually pretty cool. And so that's what I used, and that's what I got my <laughs> ticket. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go today. Tonight's the drawing. So I will go before I think 10 o'clock is the cutoff. And- All right, the clock is ticking. Yes. Dan? It's, the thing that grabs you is that moment of hope when you take your ticket out and the numbers are about to be called and you look at it, you're like, maybe this is the time, maybe this is the time, and then the, your hopes are dashed and within seconds. I, I would used to watch the local lotto drawings on, like, local TV. What was her name? Yolanda Vega. <laughs> and the first ball up is two. And I found that kind of interesting, but I never had a ticket to to have my heart sort of flutter over. It just hasn't been a thing for me. Well, my dad played for 30 years with the same numbers, the same exact numbers every every time there was a drawing for 30 years Finally won after 30 years. It won a significant amount of money. Whoa. Like like one, not in the millions, but in the hundreds of thousands. Whoa. But it took 30 years. So imagine all the money he spent. So he'd be, he probably, probably spent the same amount. I don't know. I probably, probably I not. Know. Six it's, figures? Yeah. I mean, it's like, but over 30 years, a dollar to a $2, you know, he probably spent that much. He probably spent a lot, but I think he probably won more. But that's also still right. rare. Yeah. You can play the lottery constantly your entire life and never win anything, really. I, it's just, I don't know. It isn't for me, but I would like a billion dollars or whatever. You should take the lump sum. I think just from pure economics, if you were to win, you take the lump sum, not the annual payment, because if you, God forbid, get hit by a bus the next day, that's, you know, sorry. You get one annual payment and the rest goes away. You want to get that money up front. You want to invest it properly, whether there's some charity involved, which is what I would probably do. You start making investments, houses, et cetera. I just think you'd have so many people wanting stuff from you which is why I wouldn't want to advertise that I had the money. Now, Wyatt, question. If you were to win a billion dollars, let's say you're the winner of this. Number one, obviously you would give a small cut to me. Maybe not Christine, especially after she (laughs) stiffed you this week, but I would get a small cut. I would only ask for like, let's say after taxes you get $600 million. I think $600,000. For me, would be fair. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not asking you to fully commit to it, although maybe I should, so we'd have a contract and a soundbite so I could play that in court if I needed to. But after you gave me my cut of this, just because of my kindness, et cetera, would you continue to show up for work? Or would that be the end of your tenure on The Guy Benson Show? Guy, you literally just said that that you're worried about people if you won that they come up and start asking you for money. Yes, so that's, I'm going to be that person. Well, no, I think what we what we would do is that I'm the clinger here. We would we would go on the ultimate Guy Benson show retreat, all expenses paid on Wyatt. It won't be Disney World. It'll probably be somewhere like crazy. That's a, what we would do. A foreign Disney location, <laughs> yeah, right? One of the international Disney you're, parks. You're a Disney, yeah. <laughs> all right, so I will. Take that under consideration. I'm willing to accept that as part of the deal. I have no leverage here, but I'm pretending that I do. But I guess the question stands, do you just quit and never work again? Or what do you do? Because I couldn't do that. Just being an idle rich person for the rest of my life would be mind-numbing. I think I would just keep doing my job. I might take a little bit more time off whenever I feel like it and do more you know, lavish, elaborate things in my spare time. But I think I would work. I would have to work as well, but um, another note on this on this big trip that I'm just planning in my head. Mm-hmm. Call back to earlier this hour. We will be taking a private jet in our P- oh. in our PJs. We will be taking a PJ. Yes, a private jet around I the world. Hope so, oh, and we could discuss how large the jet would be, or we could all just fly Polaris on United and accrue some points. I'm just saying.
Dan, do you keep working or are you done? Um, I would end up probably doing like a nonprofit, something like that, and like or, or play golf for the rest of my life. I don't know. Or just put a ring on it and become a stay-at-home dad. I could do that with a lot of money. With a lot of money and multiple houses, multiple cars with with child seats in them. I think after what Christine did to all of us this week on her vacation on a boat somewhere, allegedly, you should buy the boat. You should go find the boat if it exists and buy it, and then we can go on our big fancy retreat, and Christine can produce the show herself for a week with some guest hosts. That's what I'm maybe two weeks. Because what are they going to say? You know why it's worth six hundred mil all of a sudden? He could own this place. I like this. All right, good luck, Wyatt. May the odds be ever in your favor, which they are very much not. We'll get the answer if Wyatt's like a billionaire on Monday and maybe some excuses from Christine on the home stretch. Until then, have a great weekend. See you on Fox News Sunday. It's The Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.